Welcome to the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. Today, I'm so happy that we have with us Maya West. Hi, Maya. Hi, nice to see you again, Aaron. Great to see you today. Maya West is the owner of the law office of Maya West and founder of Moxie Lab, a leadership company for emerging visionaries. She is also the founder of the Healing and Reconciliation Institute, a nonprofit consulting firm. Professionally, she is dedicated to supporting businesses in building a forward-thinking strategy as part of their mission. Her background as a civil litigator, land use consultant, and community bank enterprise risk officer has provided her with a strong legal foundation as she assists her clients from the startup phase all the way to succession and exit planning. Maya believes that helping create strong leaders is the path to growing conscious companies. Maya has served on the boards of the Ventana Wildlife Society, the Wahine Project, and the Taos Community Foundation. She is currently the chair of the Women's Leadership Council for the Women's Fund of the Community Foundation for Monterey County, as well as serving as a board member of both the Community Foundation for Monterey County and the Monterey County Rape Crisis Center. Maya is a graduate of the University of California, Santa Cruz, and the University of New Mexico School of Law. She lives in Carmel Valley, California, with her husband, Cody, and daughter, Ava. Maya, it is such a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, Aaron, thank you so much. I'm, I'm happy to be here. You know, I'm, I'm struck uh, knowing some about the work that you're doing and some of our recent uh, exchange of notes leading up to our discussion today that you are really on, on the forefront of bringing together so many different disciplines and domains of expertise, which it seems is one of the real keys to creating the stewardship and sustainability in the world that I know we're working so hard for. And I, I'm just curious, what is, what is that like for you to be working in so many different realms uh, day to day? Uh, well, that's a generous way to say it, but I, I would say that, um, you know, sometimes it feels a little bit schizophrenic, right? Um, mm-hmm. but, but, I, but I delight in it. Um, I feel like I'm in part of the, the playground of what it means to be a human when I get to focus on leaders um, and, and, the, and their work around um, building good citizens um, that can be responsive to changing times means I get to, to play with, um, you know, various industries, um, various types of leaders, and, um, and use different techniques um, in, in furtherance of that goal. And what is that, when, when you're talking about this capacity for leadership in dynamic changing times, what, what are you seeing with your clients and the colleagues that you're working with out there? What's emerging? Well, one of the things that has, um, that I'm seeing emerging, and this kind of comes from my some of the frustrations I experienced working in the environmental movement um, in the past was that sometimes it was very hard to, um, it was easy to advocate for something outside of ourselves, like protecting endangered species or um, some, you know, specific lands that were, you know, fragile ecosystem or watershed. Um, but it was harder to, to do that within our own organizations um, or even within ourselves and our own families. And so, this 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 world of kind of what I see is emerging is is truly in kind of leading from an integrated place, which means that when we're in that boardroom, when we're having to make a hard decision, that it's it's about it's about our advocacy 
out in the field, but it's also about our advocacy for our own moral compass and, and having the courage to have hard conversations. Um, and so for me, the, the kind of the bleeding edge of this is, is becoming an expert in um, conflict aversion and, and how, we, how we handle those hard conversations. Um, because that, that allows me to kind of coach my clients in overcoming that so that they can do the right thing in that moment. Boy, that is, that is so important and obviously requires so much courage. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, that keeps us from being courageous is that we often feel like we're alone in that. So we don't want to be that one person in the room who's saying the thing that needs to be said. And so one of the reasons that I wanted to kind of support more of an educational format and my own work was so that we could bring more people to the table so that folks felt like they had a network. So when they need to stand up and, and do something from an act of courage, that they know they're doing that um, with, with a whole kind of network of people that support them or support those values. Oh, that's beautiful. So there's a real sense of stepping into a whole new community, a whole new set of relationships that are available. Yeah, because I think sometimes we pick our relationships based on job titles um, yeah. or industries and or, or convenience. Um, and I, I have gotten um, into the practice of doing this myself and also advising my clients on this to, to pick their network based on um, their actions. So those who, those who show me through their actions that they can actually walk the talk are my kind of people because I'm kind of love, I'm kind of an actor myself. Um, and so I want that in my life, uh, whether that's my professional life, personal life, whatever, I want to surround myself with folks that, that are people of integrity who can actually have the courage to take those steps. Um, and so that becomes my new network. And, you know, they can, they can have all kinds of job titles and become from all kinds of industries. Well, that's, that, that's such an important and potent point. You know, I find with the work we're doing in the sustainability arena, you know, the title CEO hardly tells us anything, right? Some of the most forward thinking and innovative and frankly, uh, competitive executive leaders may have the title CEO while at the same time, some of the folks who are uh, creating huge resistance to some of the change that's needed in our world right now might also have that same title. So it's, it's such an interesting uh, opportunity to focus much more on the actions and on the titles themselves. Yeah, and I, I, I for me, it's just helped me also um, with distinguishing um, not only not to make people feel bad because they haven't been acting um, if they're that they're that kind of way, but but distinguishing what someone's own um, way of handling um, conflict because in this in this world that we're in um, with this incredibly um, changing and, and persistent dynamic with climate change is that we we are we are experiencing something quite terrifying and our brains respond accordingly and so when so even though we might have somebody who may not act you know my people are actors but that's just because that's how I handle conflict um, as I, I do um, but other folks freeze and other folks run and head for the hills um, I all of those are kind of normal brain reactions um, to conflict, and I, I think of climate change as being a, a very, um, a very stimulating um, on our brain kind of event, um, which is because it, we're afraid of our future. We're worried about our children. We're worried about uh, how we best protect animals and the environment, um, and all of those kind of impact us from like a, you know, what we would call kind of a conflict perspective. And so, yes, I, I look for my crew from who acts because I do, but. 
but the folks that aren't acting maybe are doing so just because that's their way of handling the very challenging prospect that we're looking at. That is so interesting. Well, I, I find that there's plenty of opportunity to observe and experience a profound cognitive dissonance in these times when we are aware that we're seeing more and more systemic change, disruption in climate and elsewhere. And at the same time, for a lot of us day to day, it, it appears as if all is well, or it can appear that way. Yeah. And I, I know for business leaders, with all of the pressures and stressors of uh, financial performance of leading a team of people that in and of itself is incredibly dynamic and challenging. And to layer on top of that, the additional environmental and social priorities and objectives creates a, a pretty complex landscape for people. It, it does. And, and I, and I, you know, I, as you know, we both are parents. Um, and, and one of the things that we are constantly juggling is something that a lot of folks can understand. And so they can maybe relate to this example, which is that balance between my role as a parent and my role as a professional. Uh, my role as a wife, a role as a friend, you know, we, we, we get pulled in these different directions. And I think that some of the challenges that we have um, and who we're kind of supporting in leadership right now is that they kind of lead from just one, which is their professional lead. And sometimes that means that they're ignoring, um, you know, their, the other roles that they play, whether that's their family or their own, maybe their own personal moral compass or some other role that's a part of their lives. Um, and they kind of override those or steamroll those other roles at the expense of, of performance. Um, and so I think that's one of the challenges in business is that that ex exceptional pressure um, is often placed on just one aspect of their um, of their day-to-day -day roles and uh, and then it, it underemphasizes the other ones. Yeah, interesting. Well, as, uh, as was written in Why on Earth, the chapter Balance, we really dug into how essential it is for us to cultivate as much balance in our own lives as we can, especially when we're in positions of leadership. Yeah. And uh, boy, that's, that, that really is a, a, an ongoing practice, right? It's not flipping some switch and there you are. Absolutely, Aaron, and I, and that's one place where I really, really connected with your writing is that that idea of that balance. For myself, I use the metaphor of what I call the braid of the, the integrated self. You know, it's and that's kind of what I teach to in leadership, which is that if any point those that braid becomes frayed, then I know I'm doing something wrong, and I kind of have to wait until I get them all back together again and back into a braid um, mm -hmm. because. I, that that um, I think of the braid as being kind of like a way of thinking about the path of my life and that I'm kind of bringing all these parts of myself along for the ride. Um, but if any one point doesn't work out, I have to kind of stop and assess myself and get the braid rebraided. Um, and that's one of the only ways I've been able to make sure that I'm not being a total hypocrite when I advocate for my clients um, because that's very common <laughs> is to be a hypocrite consultant. Um, but I'm trying really hard not to do that. Um, and also just to realize the challenge of that, which is that every day I'm having to, to also walk the talk so that I can um, be a model of good behavior for my clients as well. <laughs> sure, yeah, that's so important. Well, we hear that old adage about the uh, cobbler wearing no shoes, right? Yes. And uh, clearly those of us who are coaching and advising and consulting to other leaders, uh, are, we probably have an additional call to be even more impeccable and diligent in those practices. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know, I'm struck that you have, you've got this beautiful metaphor of the braid of an integrated self. And 
Boy, that can seem actually to make it sound very simplistic, but you have done a very deep dive into the the science of the neurology of what's going on as complex species responding to various stressors. And I, I really want to ask you some questions about the neuroscience of all of this. But before diving into that, I, I also, for context, want to ask you to share with our audience, who, who are you working with? Give us a sense of the different clients, the different companies that you're working with and for so that we, we have a good uh, picture in mind as we get into the neuroscience. Sounds good. Um, so so I, I, I settled on forward thinking leadership because I personally wanted to make sure that I included everyone that wanted to uh, maybe approach their, their company or organization or sphere of influence from a new leadership style regardless of titles, right? Um, and so what for me encapsulated the forward thinking are those who are very growth oriented, vulnerable um, and long view planners um, or the people who wanna be like them, right? So my clients um, are you know, small to mid-sized companies um, and, and of course the leaders who pick up the phone are folks that fit um, that category of, of wanting that in their life and just not knowing how to get there. It's not necessarily something you learn in an MBA program or on the streets of, of being an entrepreneur in a startup um, and, and I serve um, throughout the state of California under my law license. Um, and so some of my clients I do, I offer legal coaching to, um, and that's to, um, to create space for that long-term plan. Um, so I'm, I jokingly call myself a high-paid metronome, like that old wooden box on the top of the piano that keeps the time. Yeah. And so I set my metronome with my clients' um, best interests in mind, um, and then I can see them on a regular basis to help um, support their higher view for their self and their company um, and keep them on track because it's just, you know, making time for it is half the battle. Um, and then, so, yeah, so that's, so that's who I serve. And again, you know, everything from organic farming to, uh, gosh, uh, education, uh, nonprofits. Um, I play around a lot with the hybrid social purpose roles a lot because I love, love that, that interface between nonprofit and for-profit partnerships um, so those are, yeah, those are my clients and, and I got to those clients and those are the ones that I wanted to be with because of neuroscience. Um, so I, if you want, I, I can dig into that a little bit if you'd like. Yeah, let's do it. I'm so excited for this. Okay. So, um, so why did I, why did I get involved in neuroscience was because I was, I, I'm a, I'm a certified mediator. Um, I've been a, you know, former litigator years of, um, years of handling conflict and supporting my clients and resolution of those conflicts. And, and I wanted to create my new practice around those who had a different response to conflict. Um, so what, what do we know about neuroscience? Um, this is the classic saber-toothed tiger scenario that people are getting more and more comfortable with understanding, which is that our brains were built to survive a saber-toothed attack. Um, and the saber-toothed tiger um, invokes one of four responses in us. Um, we do a fight, flight, or freeze, and then, and then there's this fourth one called appease, which we can talk about. But in general, we all have one that we kind of go as our default survival instinct. So fight is obviously arguing with or actually throwing punches, depending on how bad you are with your fight response. Um, flight is avoiding running the other way. Um, freeze is being non-responsive, um, so, um, cognitive dissonance, uh, memory loss, um, truly forgetting what happened. And then appease is sometimes trying to make friends with the thing that's trying to attack you, like, which, 
which I can be guilty of. Um, and it's one of those ones that, you know, is kind of tricky. And so those four are kind of your classic responses to conflict. And, and from a neuroscience perspective, one of the things that we're just trying to do is acknowledge that when we, um, when we have um, a challenge that comes up, whether this is a moral crisis where we have to say the right thing in the boardroom and we're the only ones to do it, or we have to fire somebody, um, or something that I wouldn't even imagine, but it, for that person is a conflict. We acknowledge that we have a kind of a dominant response, and in that way we can overcome our, our, um, our norm, normal dominant response with coming up with a plan uh, so that we can get overcome it and feel success. Uh, and then the, the challenge of this sometimes is that we, um, we can go our whole lives not realizing that we're actually responding to conflicts we want to avoid. Um, or we, we, we railroad everybody, or we hire a bunch of mini-me's and they all nod in agreement every time you speak. You know, it's, we, we have a tendency to create a life around avoiding um, the things that need to be done. Um, and, I, and part of that comes from being an owner. Sometimes we have a little bit more privilege. Uh, we, can, we can be more selective in what we face, um, which means we can also be selective about what communities we live in, um, whether we recycle or not. Uh, we have the, these choices that we can do to avoid hard conversations, avoid, avoid hard choices, or any kind of sacrifice that may need to be met um, in response to changing times. And so that, that's the neuroscience piece has come in uh, quite a bit into my work. And so, you know, the low-hanging fruit of that is how to know how to do a confrontation, know how to do some basic conflict resolution. And, and so that's a huge part of our work is identifying that which gets the owners of the company, um, helping them develop a more robust plan for that strategy, and then ideally bringing the whole team involved um, to be involved in that process. It's so amazing how what we're talking about is human psychology, right? And, and a, a title might suggest we're talking about legal and business, but we're actually talking about human psychology here. Yeah, yeah. And I, well, and I, because I've always, I've always been kind of a change maker. You know, I came, I came into this world you know, yelling, you know, support for the underdog. And I was always had righteous indignation about everything. And, you know, my teachers in high school could tell you that I just was, I'm sure I was just exhausting for them. Um, but I've, I've, I've always um, been interested in what makes people change. Yeah. Um, and so for me, um, the coolest part that, that, that was liberating in the study of neuroscience is this concept of neuroplasticity, yeah. which um, is a critical part of behavior change. And so when we, when we look at neuroplasticity from the perspective of business and being a responsible enviro social business owner, um, what we're looking at is what are the baby steps that we can take in honor of our joyous future selves um, that allow us to create a new neural pathway um, for a change in behavior. And so, so that goes back to my high paid metronome. All I'm doing is reinforcing the neural pathway for their, their decision making around a better future um, and a more honorable self for them versus the hab habitual self that they were doing in the past. That's absolutely beautiful and profound on the one hand, yet really simple on the other. Yeah. I mean, this stuff is, this is, you know, this is not new material. We just, we just, sometimes we forget what works best are the basics, right? Um, this, this, this stuff around neural pathway work is exactly what um, psychiatrists use to treat heroin addicts. Um, it's about small, small goal setting 
um, around identifying things from a, of a, um, a you know, adversity and conflict perspective, honoring that we all need to feel safe when we make decisions. And even better yet, we need to be excited and joyous about the decisions we're making. And then that's, that's the, that's the special sauce. That's what works. And so when we, when we create a long view for somebody that's sounds way more tantalizing than what they're doing today, um, you know, we all can find ourselves in crap storms of <laughs> conflict and how did I end up here? But if we create something that um, helps them imagine what it's going to be like tomorrow and it sounds as exciting as possible, then yeah. they have the ability to take those baby steps and create the new neural pathway. So well, neuroplasticity is like the best thing in the world because that means we all have the ability to, um, to do that. We're not, we know, we don't, we, we don't, we're not born and die with these brains that we have. We have the ability to use our brains for our, our benefit and for others. Oh my gosh. Well, my own personal experience, I, I can attest to this a little bit with, uh, some work I did with a guide and actually used a technology, um, called EMDR, which you may be familiar with, may have heard of. Yeah. And it, it literally seemed to have rerouted, uh, neurological pathway responses to certain stressors so instead of dropping into that fight or flight mode it was almost as if the thing just wasn't triggering me the same way anymore exactly and so you know i i so in my my the other work that i do i we we use what i call kind of a trauma-informed and healing-centered approach but i it's the same stuff i do in the business which is you know the works of dr vessel van der Kolk, who's an international expert on trauma emdr and these kind of mind body um uh mind body modalities um do help us um because we need the brain response and then also the body integration and 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 i think that that um you know in the times that we're in i think it's fair to say that that most folks are dealing with even um even a minimally traumatized brain um because we are we're dealing with quite scary things and so our brain response to that is is having a normal reaction which is so just handling ourselves with kid gloves a little bit um, and understanding that the stuff that we would normally be able to handle more resiliently, sometimes we might not be able to because of these kind of low grade fever that we're feeling with the, the national tenor and the international issues that we're facing. Yes. Yes. So, it's so beautiful that invitation to treat, handle our own selves with a bit more gentleness and understanding as we're each doing our best to grow and learn and, and change. Right. Yeah, and I think we're really hard on ourselves and we carry a lot of shame about being bad, you know, or, or making big mistakes. And, you know, in, in my world, you know, we try to open that up to just acknowledge that everyone makes mistakes. Everyone's a human being. And, and, and if, we, if we make a mistake that we, 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 as much as we can, we own and acknowledge it. And ideally, we work in an environment that allows for that um, because all those things help with business strategy and success. Um, we want, you know, as an owner of a company, I want to know if somebody made a mistake in my team because gosh, then we can deal with it. But, um, but if they, if my member of my team has a freeze response, um, to making a mistake, right. uh, I might never hear about it. Yeah. And that's very challenging. Yeah. I want to ask you a specific question in this context because I've, I've been encountering this some myself lately and I'm, I'm really curious what you'll say about it. My, my experience, and this is oversimplifying, is we, we could think of our, our relationships with people as, as seeing individuals kind of at, in three places. We, I, I know plenty of folks who are absolutely activated, who are social entrepreneurs, who are 
doing incredible things in their own personal work-life balance and are doing incredible work in the community, in the world with environmental and social leadership. I also know a whole bunch of folks who are uh, heading in that direction and who are really eager to learn more, to develop more tools, to develop more capacity, and in many cases are soaking that up. And then I also encounter uh, fairly regularly folks who just aren't there yet and who we might say aren't convinced or aren't exhibiting uh, a response to the reality in which we're situated as it relates to these various environmental and social challenges. And I, I want to quote you from an email you sent me. You said, action that is sustainable and lasting comes from a deeper motivator, deeper than just social approval or shame. And it's one that is based on our personal reasons for wanting to be good guardians of the land and proponents of diverse communities. And I'm just wondering, in your experience, when we're working with folks who maybe don't even believe any of this matters, mm -hmm. do you have any tools, techniques, approaches that you would share that help to unlock that a little bit? Um, well, I, a couple things. First of all, there's some folks that just can't be helped. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> and that's, that's me with my lawyer hat on, not my former social worker hat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I know, I know where to, you know, it just life is short and, uh, and I want to, I don't need to be trying to convince anyone. Um, because it, honestly, it's, you know, we're all on our own path at our own, um, at our own station in life. And, you know, some of us have the incredible privilege of, of getting to a place in our lives professionally where, we have the resources and the energy and the time to be able to to have this conversation that we're having, and and some folks are truly you know worried about housing security, right? So they're so they're um, they're just focused on that, and you know honestly that's that's critical. They're they're on a minute by minute or hour weekly basis, and and it's hard for them to have a longer view to see where um, where what happens today might affect tomorrow. But for everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, for everybody else, um, one of the things that that I have um, found really successful is that I, I work with a lot of folks. Um, this comes more, a little bit more on my the nonprofit work that I'm doing, but um, I work with um, folks that are white identified. And 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 what what are we doing in that space? Is these are folks who want to um, serve um, a more diverse population. They consider themselves progressive, maybe liberals or just or or good good conservative church folks. But in general, they're folks that have um, always felt like they were good people and want to do the right thing, and um, and they come from all walks of life, but they're white identified. Um, and they're wanting to be better and more sensitive allies in a multicultural setting, for example, and, and not offend anybody and try to try to continue to be helpful in those spaces. And so in, in, in when we have those conversations, one of the things that I encourage folks to do is, is to first to, 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 to remember that we all have our own, our own um, intuition about where, um, where we should be spending our time and where we shouldn't our own sense of, um, of what it means to be a good citizen for us, and perhaps my, our own feelings about that. And sometimes it might not be so obvious. So I encourage people to journal, to explore. Some people pray, some people meditate. Some, you know, there's all kinds of ways to get there, but just having more of an internal focus um, in asking ourselves these questions about why, why we're motivated um, in the first place. Um, and then for some people, um, 
especially to our white identified folks, um, sometimes we have to go, you know, even further back because some, some, unfortunately, many um, folks, white folks in the United States have lost their cultural identity and lost their original homelands. Um, they don't, they lost the storyline and they've lost that connection. And, and that in itself is also a really important exercise. And so, so for some people, they may not have know where their ancestral lands were in you know, Northern Italy or wherever that was, but, um, but they might have a place that they went to as a young person, um, a place in nature that, that helped, helped them feel at peace. Um, so by, by doing that, um, we encourage folks to, to find that place within themselves that, that may be where they are motivated to do these things in the world before we ever leave the house. Yeah. Um, because I think that that, um, because I think that that in the end is what's sustainable. Um, you know, we all have, we can all compare ourselves to each other. So there's always going to be someone that has a fancier degree than me, mm. who's, you know, in more publications, who's gotten some, you know, hard to reach awards or whatever it is. And, and yet at the end of the day, you know, we all are showing up with our own unique flavor um, we come from our own unique lineage and our own family of origins. Um, and that in itself is special. Um, and I think we can have confidence in that. Um, and I, and so I, I feel like that's sometimes a longer, more lasting um, way for people to come to the table. Um, and certainly the rest of us can help support that process by not shaming people into, oh, you don't recycle your plastics, you know. Well, <laughs> <laughs> depends on where you live, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And now we know maybe, you know, according to the news, at least this week, that that might, you know, be a challenging position even in that. And now exactly. single use might be going by the wayside completely. Who knows? But but anyway, so that's a long answer to your question. But yeah, I, I truly encourage folks to do that deeper dive, especially white folks, mm -hmm. um, because we have a tendency to reach out into other communities. Um, you know, I, I, I get to serve a lot of indigenous leaders and um, you know, Native American populations, but indigenous folks outside of this country too. And, and, and the thing I keep learning um, from spending time with them um, in these various capacities is, gosh, you know, white folks, just, uh, you know, find your own, your, find your own motivation and your own, um, your own people, find your own reason for being here first. And then, yeah. and then we can hang out in this multicultural setting. Yeah, that's, that's so fabulous. Such great advice. I, uh, want to mention that we are uh, here talking with Maya West. This is the Why on Earth Communities Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series. And you all can connect with Maya through several social media channels. There is on Facebook, it's Law Office of Maya West, and it's spelled M-A-I-J-A. -A. We'll have this in the show notes. Twitter is Maya West Law. Uh, Instagram is Law Office Maya West, and LinkedIn, uh, the Law Office of Maya West, those words all separated by dashes. And want to also mention that this topic is so apropos for a fabulous three-day summit that the Why on Earth community is hosting outside of Boulder, Colorado, May 17th to 19th. It's called Massively Mobilizing Sustainability, Deep Leadership for the 21st Century. And Maya, with her network and friends, uh, is offering a special discount code, Maya West, which will give you a 25% discount when you register for the summit, which you can do at whyonearth.org. I'd like to also thank all of our sponsors for the podcast as well as the summit. This includes Patagonia, the International Society of Sustainability Professionals, uh, 
Equal Exchange, the Association of Water Schools of North America, Waylay Waters, the Lidge Family Foundation, Earth Coast Productions, and Purium. Thank you for all of your support to make all of this happen as we're each uh, individually and together in our relationships growing, evolving, and cultivating ourselves as stronger leaders in the world. And uh, Maya, I want to ask you on that note, you're, you're sharing so much with us about your professional life, and I understand that you also have a teenage daughter, and I'm curious how might uh, you apply some of these skills and tools you're talking about uh, in the boardroom, in the office, uh, at, at home with your daughter? Well, I'm, I, uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, going back to being a hypocrite, um, I consider my daughter um, the hypocrite detector. Um, so she is, um, not only is she um, very attuned um, to, you know, feeling out BS um, among the adults in her life, but she's also um, incredibly honest. So I get that com great combination <laughs> um, in my household, which has just made me an, obviously a better leader because again, walking the talk, um, you know, I, you know, she's, the, she's my, um, she's my uh, truth teller. Uh, yeah, I, you know, gosh, you know, with, with, with my, with my daughter, one of the, the biggest things that I have been responding to this last year, especially her coming into adulthood and feeling her oats in her own way and her own independent self is, uh, is the, um, the challenge around screens. Um, and so we have personally just tried to do um, more family trips completely away from screens. You know, everyone benefits, you know, my husband and I are both business owners also. So, you know, the, having that, that downtime is just critical from all kinds of ways. Um, but, and I, but I also, I feel like one of my biggest jobs in her life right now is for her to not give up faith. Um, and faith in humanity. Um, and, I, and, and that's actually such a, a huge driver of my work is that I want her to believe that, um, that, that, it's, that this world is worth saving um, and that it's possible. And, and, and so, you know, I, I, I try to structure almost everything I do around making sure that she feels that and that she's around inspiring people. We get her in the mountains, we get her in the ocean. We get her, you know, we get her with people who care, um, who are, you know, actively pursuing these things. And, and then to be in a friend group that keeps it light and humorous as well, you know, to balance it out. Um, so, yeah, it absolutely applies. I mean, Aaron, I'm sure you can relate to this, but it's, it's very important in these times that this next generation that we have um, have that hope, you know. Oh, I agree. So, uh wholeheartedly with that and that hope that faith and that joyfulness boy the cultivation of those things it seems is absolutely essential critical requisite to all of this work that we're doing yeah and going back to the joy you know that's the only thing that actually truly motivates us uh -huh. you know i mean if we're really looking at it from an authentic perspective but you know i had um I had, a, I, again, I get to hang out with these amazing indigenous leaders who are all, of course, environmentalists because they, how could you not be, um, especially coming from these traditions um, and practices that they have. Yeah. But, you know, we were, we were having a conversation about multi-generational trauma, you know, very heavy colonizing, you know, kind of this conversation around, you know, kind of reckoning our U.S. history. And it was quite intense. And there was a lot of people kind of heavily taking notes and you know, all these well-meaning activists, everyone's just feeling it, you know, feeling the gnarliness of listening to this. And this, this woman from New Zealand, um, a, a Maori woman, starts a game of telephone to ask what's going to be for dessert. Uh -huh. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And, 
And it disrupted everybody. And, and, and everyone was like, you know, trying to listen. And then someone's literally in their ear saying, what's for dessert? And, and it was it just, it shifted enough. Um, and it was an acknowledgement of, look, you know, we've got all this stuff going on, but, uh, but we have to balance it with the joy because we, we need to be, make this sustainable for ourselves, you know? So we can do this good work, but we got to lighten it up a little bit on the side and, you know, take a page out of the nurse's handbook. You know, they have the best gallows humor of anyone I, I know. And it's because they came up with that humor at three in the morning in the ER, right? It's the same right. kind of lightness that we bring to this work. Oh, that's such sage advice. I absolutely love it. Well, Maya, I know we're, we're just about out of time here for our conversation today. And I, I'm wondering, is there, is there anything else you want to share with our audience before we sign off? You know, I guess as I, as we sign off, I just, I think that I just acknowledge that, you know, that everybody that's chosen to listen to this amazing um, mission of this podcast and to tune into the work of Aaron and the other leaders that he brings on to this, um, to this recording, um, that that in itself is making a choice. Um, All of those little actions make a difference. And then every single one of us through these little, little tiny baby steps makes a collective um, impact. And so it's just been a pleasure to be here um, in service of your mission, Aaron. And, and I also thank the sponsors for serving um, your work as well. Well, it's uh, so wonderful having you on our show, Maya. And thank you for all the work you're doing and for taking time out of your busy schedule to share this with us today. It's uh, wonderful to know our audience will, will be able to listen to this soon. Thank you for having me. Bye. The Why on Earth Community Stewardship and Sustainability podcast series is hosted by Aaron William Perry, author, thought leader, and executive consultant. The podcast and video recordings are made possible by the generous support of people like you. To sign up as a daily, weekly, or monthly supporter, please visit whyonearth.org support. Support packages start at just $1 per month. The podcast series is also sponsored by several corporate and organization sponsors. You can get discounts on their products and services using the code WHYONEARTH, all one word with a Y. These sponsors are listed on the whyonearth.org backslash support page. If you found this particular podcast episode especially insightful, informative, or inspiring, please pass it on and share it with a friend whom you think will also enjoy it. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for your support. And thank you for being a part of the Why on Earth community.